0: Hello everybody. I am Jacob De Toni and this is the FDI podcast. Today, we're going to talk about US sanctions.
1: President Trump has said he will impose harsh sanctions on Iraq. Today I am
2: announcing a new executive order I just signed that significantly expands our authorities to target individuals, companies, financial institutions that finance and facilitate trade with North As Korea. We continue to evaluate options in response to Iranian aggression, the United States will immediately impose additional punishing economic sanctions on the Iranian regime. Based on the executive order
3: that I signed in response to Russia's initial intervention in Ukraine, we're imposing sanctions on more senior officials of the Russian government.
4: Today, here at the White House, the President convened a Principals Committee meeting. Recommendations were made to the President. In just a few moments, I'll recognize the Treasury Secretary who will detail punishing sanctions that have been placed on Turkey.
5: A handful of ministers from Germany, France, Britain, and the EU are asking the U.S. not to impose secondary sanctions against EU companies. The letter said, quote, We expect that the extraterritorial effects of U.S. secondary sanctions will not be enforced on EU entities and individuals. And the United States will thus respect our political decision and the good faith of economic operators within EU legal territory.
0: President Donald Trump, but also his predecessor, Barack Obama, have turned up the temperature on anybody dealing with those whom the White House considers rogue states, including non-U.S. companies. European countries have tried to voice political opposition to the so-called extraterritoriality of U.S. secondary sanctions. In other words, the fact that U.S. sanctions affect companies outside the U.S. jurisdiction, but realism is prevailing amongst businesses. Better comply with U.S. sanctions than steering the hire of the U.S. Treasury Department. And for the first time, a judge in the U.K. dealt with the impact of secondary sanctions apparently making them legit under British law or at least under certain contractual circumstances. Has Donald Trump become the law of the land in the UK and elsewhere in Europe? What does it mean for investment and trade? To answer these questions, I'm here in our city of London with Joy McKnight.
1: the The
0: managing editor or the banker Magazine, uh, who will uh, try to understand better with us the situation with US sanctions, what it means for uh, investment trade and uh, particularly for the financial institutions in uh, your case. So welcome to the podcast, uh, to the FDI podcast, Joy. Um, let me start with a, with, a, with, a, with a question, with a general question about law and jurisdiction. What does, if I mention mandatory law, what does this mean for you?
1: Well, um, I'm not a legal expert, as I'm sure you'll be able to tell from my answer. Um, but I think of mandatory law as a compulsory English governing law, um, as, you know, as applied within the UK jurisdiction. As a Canadian living in London, but also I'm a UK citizen, I feel I'm required to comply with UK laws. Um, but I guess in this context, the issue is what extraterritorial laws can really trump Uh, sorry about the pun, Uh, UK law in contracts.
0: Yes, I mean, uh, in my case, I'm an Italian citizen living in London uh obviously when i'm in the uk i have to comply with british law when i'm back in italy i have to comply with italian law but we with, with, with the global market we live in um the concept of jurisdiction is uh, is a bit more fluid than than we would assume actually this this uh, this definition that we 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 shared uh, they are based on the concept of territoriality um, the principle of uh, territoriality that basically uh, jurisdiction is uh, uh, the right of uh, of any state to 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 issue uh, mm. laws that regulate life and business within its uh, territory but actually as we as we will we will we'll see um, in this market uh, things can 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 be can can be a bit more blurred. For example, um, if you talk about individuals, um, U.S. U.S. citizens, even though even when they work live abroad, they are still required to pay taxes mm. under U.S. law. Um, or for example, when we fly, uh, and we do fly uh, a lot. Um, um, generally, is the is, is the law of uh, the, the 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 country where the aircraft is registered mm. that applies. So, for example, if you are a U.S. citizen of uh, 19 uh, of you know 19-year-old uh, U.S. C- citizens, and you are flying on a British Airways uh, carrier, you can still uh, have I a drink. <laughs> On, uh, during your flight, even though in the US is not allowed until uh, 21. Um, so there is this consular jurisdiction can be fluid. And actually, this judge that I mentioned, um, and we'll talk more about him, believes that when two contractual parties, so we are talking about commercial law now, uh, two contractual parties agree not to act against the mandatory law, uh, they can also refer to the secondary sanctions uh, as left on... Uh, alleged mm. rogue states uh companies individuals by the US and the uh, US uh, this this has got incredible um consequences for anybody anywhere in the world dealing with uh, uh, again, these sort of enemies of the states uh, in the eyes of the the, the U.S. Uh, law le- legislators and uh, and government, which and this list is growing uh, uh, day by day with a, with a, with a Trump administration. So let me get to the the, the Synergy Lame- uh, Mesa case. Let me take a step back before getting into detail. Um, so um, it's December 2017 when uh, Synergy, who, which is a London-based bank, uh, providing financial services to businesses in the UK borrows uh, 30 million pounds from uh, uh, this Cyprus based financial institution, uh, La Mesa. Uh, the agreement is sealed in a contract registered under British law, uh, where Synergy commits uh, to paying La Mesa interest every six months. And you know, this is just like standard. Uh, you know, financial uh, tr- uh, financial agreement from a financial transaction. So, so far, so good. But a few months later, uh, La Misa's ultimate shareholder, uh, Russian billionaire Victor Vexelberg, ends up in the net of uh, US sanctions and is listed as a US specially designated national. And La Misa therefore becomes a blocked person by reason of Vexelberg's indirect ownership. At this point, synergy Stops paying uh, La Misa the interest, the interest it's on, it, it owes on its uh, 30 million pound loan, arguing that it would be in breach of U.S. secondary sanctions if uh, if it actually paid those interests. And obviously La Misa reacts by bringing the, the issue before the English High Court and particularly this judge Judge Pelling. And here uh, we got some more details about this whole case.
2: So my name is uh, Antonio Tsanakopoulos, I'm an associate professor of public international law um, at the University of Oxford um, and uh, I also uh, do some practice out of uh, three stone uh, chambers in, in Lincoln's Inn. The first company did not, um, the first company was not a US company nor was it operating in the United States. So in that sense it shouldn't be caught by that boycott. Does that Does that make sense? But because of the secondary boycott they were worried. They were like, if I pay the money that I owe under the contract to the sanctioned company, the US, I have a risk of the US turning against me. And I don't want that. It's too much of a risk for me to take. Um, And so I will seize the payments. The other company, the sanctioned company, said, why are you not paying me? The first company said, well, because you're under US sanctions. And the second company said, "Yeah, but that's none of your concern. You still have to pay me under the contract." And the first company sought to rely on a contractual provision that said, "Well, payments don't need to be made if they're contrary to mandatory law." And so the whole question was what does mandatory law mean in that in that question. So one company was saying when it says mandatory law, that's what it say, that what that's what it means. This is a contract under UK law, which might diverge in all sorts of ways from default UK law, but it cannot diverge from mandatory law. And the other company was saying, no, mandatory law should mean any mandatory law and include US law. That was the, that was the argument. Um, and the judge read it as referring to that mandatory law through a construction of the contract. Even though the sanctioned company made the argument that, you know, you can't read this this way because it has to refer to UK law. And in fact, it is a policy of the United Kingdom not to accept these extravagant jurisdictional claims. It seems to have gone a little bit over the judge's head in that in that particular case.
0: So uh, basically, uh, in other words, there is a provision in the in the contract that says that a synergy uh, doesn't have to pay uh, interest to Lamisa if the transaction goes against uh, again this concept of uh, mandatory law. Uh, but here again, um, Joy, we have to make a distinction.
5: My name is David Harris. I'm a Partner at Norton Rose Fulbright, uh, I advise on uh, various areas of regulation and financial crime, uh, and sanctions is, is one of those areas that I focus on. So I think there's a bit of a distinction to be made. I think as to whether U.S. secondary sanctions are, were mandatory on the on the bank, something that the bank had to com- comply with, versus what the parties had agreed within the contract within the contract itself.
0: So it's not that US secondary sanction, the judge, Judge Pelling, is not saying that US mandatory US secondary sanctions are mandatory on the bank, but it's saying that when they agreed on that particular provision uh, not to act against the mandatory law, the parties could have meant also US secondary sanctions as mandatory law. Um and I guess I hear a synergy. Um, it's got a compelling uh, argument, Joy, because if you are a financial institution, uh, you don't want to be in breach of any U.S. sanctions, do you?
1: Uh, no, definitely not. I have to say that, uh, you know, a lot of banks have been fined quite large amounts over the past years in terms of whether, you know, alleged breaching of the sanctions. Um so they've been, you know, the banks have been receiving these really hefty fines. The U.S. regulators are really on the forefront of meeting out these harsh penalties, particularly at foreign banks. So if you look at Europe, for example, as of April 2019, 15 European banks had together paid more than $19.5 billion wow. for violating U.S. sanctions against various countries. You know, some of the recent cases in 2019, Standard Chartered paid $1.1 billion um, from transactions occurring between 2009 and 2014. Previously, in 2012, it paid $667 million um, in response to U.S. allegations of sanction breaches between 2001 and 2007. Also last year, Unicredit's German unit agreed to pay $1.3 billion in settlements uh, in the year before, in 2018, SOCGEN agreed to pay uh, more than 1.3 billion again. Um, of course, none of this really comes close to French banks BNP Paribas' uh, 8.97 billion penalty in 2014. But you know, these these penalties are harsh. They come down. They hit the you know bank's bottom line. You know, and you know these are just a couple of banks that been. Um, had to settle, but other banks have also been hit like ING, HSBC, Credit Suisse, Commerce Bank, Barclays. So I think of these, um, you can see three things from these cases. One, that the cost of breaching sanctions is high, as I said, and have and is having a significant impact on the bank bottom line. It can take years for these transgressions to come to light and be resolved. And there, the third thing is is that there's really little indication that the US regulators are slowing down. 2019 saw sanctions compliance fines hit a decade high.
0: Right. And uh, so these are obviously staggering figures. um, And... This is why any financial institution um, should be should think it twice before being even even facing the risk mm. of uh, breaching sanctions. But there has always been, uh, when it comes to say, U.S. secondary sanctions, there has always been the argument that um, a non-U.S. Uh, financial, or non-financial institution, but we're talking about financial institutions in this case, uh, uh, should, should should comply because otherwise. Uh, U.S. authorities can enforce uh, any legal action against a particular bank within the U.S. jurisdiction, and therefore uh, go uh, go after the interests, mm. if not the assets, of uh, these big uh, international banks within the U.S. And therefore, it's a bit of a no-brainer if you are an HSBC or a Sojern or whomever, um, if you are facing with 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 the with the option of doing business in Iran. Uh, or doing business in the U.S., obviously you want to preserve the interests mm. of uh, your U.S. interests rather than 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 uh, than uh, doing business in but possibly compromising uh, uh, your activities back in the U.S. But the particularity of this uh, this case is that uh, none of the parties had anything to do with the uh, with the United States. So um, this was uh, again a contract between a, a London-based uh, borrower. And a Cyprus-based uh, uh, lender. Uh, it was uh, uh, the the loan was in uh, British pounds. The interests uh, were uh, the agreed interests were in uh, British pounds. Um, and it was a financial agreement registered under under British law. Uh, still. The Synergy, the company that decided not to pay the interest, uh, um, not to breach uh, sanctions uh, or not to face the risk of sanctions, decided uh, to go ahead uh, because there is something called a Nostra account, which still uh, matters for uh, even though if you haven't got any interest Mm. in in the U.S. market. And this is why.
5: Particularly for a foreign financial institution, if you want to process any U.S. dollar payment, that, that has to go through your, your U.S. Uh, correspondent bank. And so essentially that, that transaction technically goes through the U.S. financial system. And without that facility in place, you cannot process U.S. dollar payments. And given given the prevalence of the use of the dollar and the, 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 the power of the, the, the dollar, that's why it's such a concern for... Um, financial foreign financial institutions if they want to deal in the US, okay. yeah, um, and that's and that and that's a very important factor when they're looking at how they need to comply with not just um, even when there's no there's no other US involvement um, and even on a particular transaction like in in this case where there was no no US parties there was no US part to the transaction US dollars wasn't even used. It was more the risk to the to the bank's broader business, uh, and that's and that 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 was the issue uh, that um, that synergy bank faced.
0: So, if you want to, if you're a bank and you want to offer any services a service in U.S. dollars, a U.S. dollars U.S. dollars bank account, you need a Nostra account. And if you don't have a Nostra account, you are shut out of uh, of the dollar market, and basically. You are as a bank, as a bank based in London, you are you you are basically bankrupt. Um, and there is also another element of the story: is not just accessi- accessing US dollars, but is why it is so important for any financial institution to access US dollars.
4: Ian Stewart, founder of SanctionsAML.com, author of Cross Border Sanctions and AML.
0: If you have
4: on a pair currency basis, so where you have two currencies, so you have the dollar and the euro. 100% dollar, 100% euro, 200% total transaction. If you have a currency like the US dollar, which has around 90% out of 200% of all forex currency transactions in the world, over 60% of the world's reserves are held in US dollars. If you have that type of leverage, that type of bargaining power, because of course the threat is we will cut you off from the US dollar access, it is very, very difficult to find uh, arguments to go against that.
0: So Joy, the mighty dollar,
1: Mm. and this is how it works, actually. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Just as Ian pointed out, you know, you just think the US dollar remains the world's dominant vehicle currency because it's stable, it's liquid, and it's easy to use. Um, and as Ian said, like, um, and also the Bank for International Settlements, triannual FX Survey, found that the U.S. dollar is on one side of 88% of all trades um, as of April 2019. And really no other currency comes close. So therefore, for a global bank to be excluded from the global financial system dominated by dollars, it would be a mortal blow to their business, uh, which allows the U.S. really to use sanctions to impose its political will on other countries. Uh, and the Trump administration, I think, is increasingly using sanctions as a foreign to- policy tool.
0: Excited This brings uh, brings us to 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 the next point of this discussion: um, the ramp up of uh, uh, the White House programs, sanctions mm. programs, and how they're using it literally as a as a as a, as a foreign as a, as a as a as a foreign policy tool to to go after. Uh, to to achieve any sort of foreign policy uh, target that they have towards North Korea Iran venezuela uh, and so on so russia or and so on uh, and and,
1: and the so threat forth. of keeping all the other countries that not that aren't on the end of the sanctions list right keeping all of those other countries in line with us policy exactly and
0: this also works for uh, companies because uh, maybe you don't get fined eventually but you might run the risk of being uh, uh, in turn blacklisted or listed mm. as a special uh, designated uh, national as an individual or as a company and once that happens nobody else around you at least in a in a in a in a west mm. in a western world would, would be uh, very keen to to do business uh, with you but it's 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 really it's really something that uh, to, to that we we should emphasize the fact that really beyond the rhetoric, uh, the u s government is really ramping up these uh, sanctions mm. programs. And here a brief uh, description of what's happening.
3: I'm Lee Hansen. I'm a partner in the global regulatory enforcement group of Reed Smith. You know sanctions have been around for quite a long time. I mean, certainly, you know the United States is, have used sanctions over the years. It for a variety of reasons, um, certainly though, with um, you know the, the Trump administration, they've become definitely um, a more aggressive tool, and certainly um, you know I think the secondary sanctions that are used quite frequently now, previously had been used really only in very rare situations when those primary sanctions, the ones that apply to U.S. persons, weren't working, and I think um, it could be that the Trump administration had seen the success of. The Obama administration, particularly with regard to Iran, in using those secondary sanctions, and instead of, you know, s- simply starting with primary sanctions and waiting for the results, I think he sort of jumped right into, let's just start with the secondary sanctions because they seem to have a very significant impact and a very quick impact um, on businesses and organizations, and so I think you know the sanctions have moved from a situation where it was primarily an issue that you know banks were mainly worried about or U.S. companies to a situation where. Um, Now, non-U.S. entities are very concerned about the impact that these sanctions are having on their global markets. Um, Because, you know, I think if you asked me, you know, even a year ago, whether I was seeing, for example, Chinese clients having any concern about this, I would have just laughed because they had absolutely no interest and, you know, concern. They never thought that this was anything that was going to impact them. But now you're seeing a lot of our Chinese clients really um, digging into and trying to understand the regulations, making sure that they're compliant because, you know, the U.S. market, even for, you know, the Chinese nationals is is very significant and they don't want to be locked out of it. And they've seen really strong enforcement against um, you know Chinese companies for violating these secondary sanctions, so that I think is a very big surprise
0: so joy um, the u s government is ramping up these uh, sanctions uh, secondary sanctions uh, programs um, and just to give you uh, key figures in uh, two thousand and eighteen, there were thousand four hundred seventy four new individuals for companies added to the to the sort of blacklist. Of sanctioned uh, SDN uh, special designated nationals, uh, the following years were a bit less, seven seven hundred ninety two. But these are still record figures. in the, in, the, in the previous years, in the previous ten years, it wouldn't go uh, beyond six hundred mm. uh, additions per year. And also in terms of like fines um penalties we are we have been at uh, record levels since uh trump uh, rose to power uh, in 2017 and obviously one of the, the 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 kind of like the poster the 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 the, the, the more the, the most aggressive uh, sanctions program uh, of the trump administration has been against uh, iran mm. and even when um there was still uh, from a European side, a commitment to keep to to keep in place, to stick to the the nuclear agreement uh, um, after Trump withdrew support, withdrew his support to the to the agreement. Um, the fact that Iranian banks were basically cut out of the dollar market was a, was a major impediment for. Anybody else uh, Mm. trying to do anybody else in Europe trying to do business in Iran? Um, So, what are you hearing? So, can you give us an idea of what it really meant, uh, what it really means at the moment to do business with Iranian banks?
1: Well, it's pretty much impossible um, to do business with Iranian banks uh, since the imposition of those new sanctions in November 2018, when you know Trump had pulled out of the that uh, 2015 nuclear deal. earlier that year. So this has effectively cut Iranian banks' ties to the financial world and to the correspondent banking network. For example, SWIFT, which is a messaging system that connects more than 11,000 financial institutions around the world, it began disconnecting Iranian banks in November 2018 as the U.S. sanctioned those banks and then also threatened penalties against SWIFT itself for allowing sanctioned banks to keep using the network. So although SWIFT doesn't move money, being outside the SWIFT messaging network means that the banks can't send or receive money transfer information, which enables transactions. But now even the Central Bank of Iran is subject to sanctions as of September 2019, um, following the attacks on the oil facilities in Saudi Arabia that the Saudis and US officials have blamed on Iran. Um, and I think we really need to, to think about this because, uh, you know, according to the IFC, there's a risk that by excluding Iranian or other sanctioned countries' banks from the global financial system. This threatens to undermine economic stability and growth, financial inclusion and development goals. Um, but what is interesting is some jurisdictions are now trying to find a workaround. For, for example, in India, there has an alternative payment system in place for doing business with Iran. China is working on its own international payment system and Russia also announced plans to bypass sanctions imposed by Washington by expanding its national network which is called the System for Transfer of Financial Messages or SPFS.
0: Okay so uh, and and this is important because uh, beyond the banking uh, the banking sector uh there is a whole universe of uh, investors traders mm-hmm that might be willing uh, to trade with some of these countries uh, but obviously if they're not able to transfer money to mm. settle international trade uh they they can they, they they can't do it mm. um which is pretty much like what the US administration is 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 trying to achieve so in the, in this way in this way they are, they are being very successful mm. um as also the our synergy Lamisa case uh, shows us uh but it's not only about extension of the sanctions programs but also a particular element of uh, the way these executive orders are phrased and designed
3: the sanctions are often confusing and they're not written very clearly and i sometimes i think that that's designed to be that way because the the idea is really to you know by the u s. government is to stop non u s persons from doing business with these entities, and if they can do so you know they're they're not there to make people feel comfortable you know they're not you know they don't have put out these frequently asked questions and they don't put out these regulations and they don't put out policy statements to make people feel better. they're doing it because they want you to stop doing business with these companies and these and these individuals so
0: again, also this vagueness of uh, the way u s sanctions are designed uh, feeds into uh, a, a pretty confusing narrative. If you are a business, a non-US business, or even a US business trying to do business with somebody that, for some reasons, have been ever uh, ended up in the SDN list, uh, then it's uh, it's probably a risk that you don't want to touch at all. So mm. it's it's very it's very complicated for for you to find a way around it. Even though there are countries, as you mentioned, that are trying to build up some schemes. Um, some schemes to to allow their their, their, their companies to, to to continue some of the business with some of these countries individuals or companies uh, but I guess to get to 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 wrap it up I guess that uh, when it comes to US sanctions and US secondary sanctions they they don't really just Commercial or trade or investment issues, but this is really to go at the core of the question. Is really a, a, an issue that goes traces back, all the way back to to the sovereignty of uh, a state and to that consular jurisdiction that we discussed at the beginning.
4: Okay, so the key thing to focus on with sanctions is the notion of sovereignty. Never mind primary. Never mind secondary U.S. sanctions. The fact that another government can fine, can penalise to the extent that the US can, using the US dollar, the uh, threat of no more access to its market as leverage, as suasion, is an enormous uh, threat to businesses, to governments, jurisdictions, transactions. So the notion of sovereignty is a problem. And the key point now is that the US thinks, US lawyers, US corporations, US governmental officials at Treasury, they all think everyone understands this, in fact, if you go and talk to the European Union, who are putting together INSTECs, who have been putting together blocking statues which deny extraterritoriality from the US, this is since 1996, they will say, Angela Merkel. Mahathir Mohamed, Prime Minister of Malaysia, will say, no, extraterritoriality from the US is not possible. Only the UN has the rights to do this. The problem is that you have the US assuming people know and you have the non-US side full of people who really don't think this should be possible because international law norms indicate very strongly that the US should not really have jurisdiction on non-US market, non-US dollar, non-US affiliates, outside of the US market transactions. But, as you rightly say, Iran is, is a good example. Since 2010, CISADA, secondary sanctions apply, and since the re- imposition of sanctions in November 2018, and the ramp up since the recent uh, turbulence in in the Middle East, things are extremely complicated. Now, secondary sanctions means It does not have to be US-related, it does not have to be US dollar, it does not have to be even a foreign affiliate of a US company. That's irrelevant. It could just be engaging with Iran. So we're talking about correspondent banking issues. So these are the people that the foreign uh, external banks that, say, a European firm would engage with outside of the US, outside of Europe. All of these um, relationships have to be considered as potentially threatening.
0: So it's it's actually a big uh, uh, sovereignty issue and therefore also a big political issue, uh, particularly in the European Union. The European Union mm. and the European countries, they have tried to, to counter US secondary sanctions against Iran, for example, uh, with something uh, that, uh, Ian Stewart that we just uh, listen to uh called the, the blocking statute mm. uh, which basically uh, in in a way um, uh, forbids pro- pro- prohibit you uh, EU, uh, european companies from complying uh, um from compliance with us sanctions on iran but Actually, as we discussed, it's not that easy if you are a non-U.S. bank, but even if you are a non-U.S. Uh, trader or investor, not to comply with U.S. sanctions because of the risk that this non-compliance would, uh, would bring along. And uh, David Harris helps, again, understand a bit better at this point.
5: Companies, particularly EU companies, are forced with a rock and a hard place there because you can't comply with everything. <laughs> um, and that's really going to be a balancing of the risk. You're either going to, you, you, you're either going to risk um, uh, breaching or, or having you know, U.S. secondary sanctions imposed on you, or risk some sort of enforcement action under the EU blocking regulation if you do comply. If you are seen as complying mm-hmm. with U.S. secondary sanctions.
0: So yeah, uh, Joy, what do you make of all these uh, European companies, uh, definitely finding themselves between a rock and a hard place in a way because.
1: Well, again, you know, uh, it just shows with the in terms of what happened with the banks and the in the amount of fines and the hefty fines that the banks have been paying on this, and it will transfer down into the the corporates that they deal with as well, and stuff. And they are caught between a rock and a hard place. Like we can talk about sort of alternative systems coming into play and stuff, but the problem is, is that. If you're you know known to use these alternative systems, then you can still face these sanctions and still actually get faced with being kicked out of the um, of the the whole correspondent banking network and things like that. So. You know, like two thousand and eighteen, Venezuela launched its its Petro, the oil backed cryptocurrency, yes. um, which which really had the specific aims to circumvent U.S. sanctions. And as they said, re, as Maduro, the president at that time, said, regain monetary sovereignty. But at the same time, that that really hasn't gone anywhere because people, again, they just can't use it. And I just wanted to to bring up the fact that, you know. Alongside with all these sanctions there's on and the drag on trade, there's also a humanitarian aspect to the sanctions. And so U.S. trade sanctions meant that Iran, Iran hasn't been able to purchase medicine from European companies due to fears by European banks of being sanctioned and things. Uh, and I've talked to uh, European corporate treasurers, and for them it's a really big headache because they're working in companies <laughs> that... Like all of the trade that they are doing is legitimate trade, and they're actually, you know, uh, supplying the basic necessities of life. And yet, at the same time, they also face, you know, they also fear what uh, the sanctions. And then also, they can't find any banks that will actually service them.
0: Yeah, yeah, and this part on uh, humanitarian aid is a is a big question mark. It really depends on who you speak to. Somebody says it's allowed. Somebody says it's not allowed on mm. paper. It is allowed. Mm. But again, then uh, you look at uh, all the infrastructure that you need uh, to process that aid, uh, like mm. financial infrastructure or trade infrastructure. And again, you know the, the the different steps that you need to take to process that uh, transaction, each one of them still can uh, be vulnerable of mm. uh, of being in breach of sanctions, so mm. again it makes it very, very, very tricky. But at least um, um, there are legal ways to try at least mitigate the risk of uh, U.S. sanctions. And uh, as uh, Lee Anson uh, helps us understand. There is a growing awareness amongst, the, amongst businesses of the need to comply with U.S. sanctions, and they need to find the, the legal, uh, the legal ways to, to to be on the safe side of the U.S. sanctions.
3: The awareness has grown you know, significantly because of you know a number of you know high-profile cases. You know there was you know the, the designation of Costco Shipping, for example, which you know is one of the world's largest shipping lines. Um, You know, Chinese company that was designated for violating Iran sanctions. Um, And I think, you know, a lot of these Chinese companies for a long time thought that they were untouchable and that the US government wouldn't go after them. And I think now that they're seeing that that's not the case and that a number of, you know, using just China as an example, a number of those companies are being designated, um, I think they've decided you know, because they want to continue doing business with the U.S., they want to continue doing business globally, because even non-U.S. companies are stopping business with those organizations because they don't want to be designated. Um, I think they're seeing the risk, and so they're really, you know, upping their compliance game, which is, um, you know, a a big change from just a few years ago. So we're spending a lot more time now, I think, with non-U.S. companies, making sure that they've got, um, you know, adequate procedures in place for screening, um, making sure that they're doing auditing, Making sure that if there are potential violations that they're investigating them quickly and potentially disclosing them to the U.S. government before they become a bigger problem so that they get the benefits of doing a voluntary disclosure.
0: So, Joy, um, overall, um, how big do you you think is the impact of uh, these U.S. secondary sanction programs on uh, the global banking industry?
1: I think it has a pretty big impact. Um, as we talked about before, the use of economic sanctions has really exploded. Use, they used to be used very selectively and carefully, but they're now they're being used almost as a first strike. Um, you know, for example, sanctions were slapped on Turkey in October, only to be removed less than ten days later. You know, how can banks or companies work or plan in this environment? And so the cost and complexities of trying to work out whether a client might be in breach of sanctions rules many banks have just stopped you know activities in certain countries completely um, and you know in the correspondent banking world it's called de-risking where you just the correspondent banks have just withdrawn um, which also has trade uh, impacts on trade and economic sp- stability and growth that we talked about before i guess right now like before the banks used to just have you know in terms of compliance in general but also you know sanction screenings and things like that they've just had you know thrown people at it in order to try and solve the problem but i think the the positive thing that's coming to the fore now is that they're now using you know or they're using new technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning and things to try and start to manage this but again, like, how can you do it when you know the, the the environment is changing so quickly? It's so
0: volatile. And this happens also for uh, non-financial companies, uh, non-US non-financial companies. Um, there are uh, several uh, very interesting cases of uh, companies uh, uh, withdrawing altogether from uh, a specific market uh, that for, for one reason or another have been sanctioned. Um, and there are also U.S. companies, in a way, are overreacting to this. There is a a, a pretty pretty dis- discussed case of Adobe, uh, from Photoshop, Illustrator. Mm-hmm. So if you are a designer, you 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 you're, you if you are into any sort of media, um, web designing, etc., you need a photo for for Photoshop, photography. Mm-hmm. You need Adobe, um, and basically um, Adobe pulled out of uh, Venezuela in uh, in October mm. altogether overnight basically closed all its accounts in in Venezuela um just because not because uh, all of its users were were sanctioned obviously uh, but because uh, basically so, like the risk we are facing uh, mm. Should uh, even one of our users be uh, be uh, a sanctioned individual is too high for us to, to to stomach, and this is pretty much what happened. Also with uh, fintech uh, sensation uh, unicorn uh, TransferWise, mm. that they also closed down their business in Venezuela uh, because of the risk of. Uh, uh, the risk of uh, anybody in its uh, network of users, uh, local users, uh, being a sanctioned individual or a sanctioned business. So again, literally, we companies, as, as you were rightly pointing out, the, the the regulatory environment is so volatile, and this sanctions program has been so extensive and so vague, mm. as Lee Hanson has said before. That uh, for some companies, it's 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 as some countries have become a no-go altogether. And this is a final remark by on this with Antonio Sanacopoulos that we heard at the very beginning.
2: You, as a company, you're worried. You're like, okay, the last thing I need is getting in trouble with the U.S. because I need to do business there. So I'm not going to take the risk um, of um, doing any transaction with someone who is blocked by the U.S., even though I'm not a U.S. company, I'm not violating U.S. law, because then I'm going to have problems dealing with them. So that's essentially what happens here. Well, Joy, this has been
0: a fascinating Yes. Uh, I guess that uh, we will keep, uh, U.S. secondary sanctions will keep steering a controversy and debate mm. uh, in in any foreseeable uh, future.
1: Great. Thanks for
0: having me, Jacopo. Thank you very much for being with us and sharing your insights uh, with us um special thanks also to to our producers uh, Louis Bermendez and Eleanor bagnal thanks everybody for tuning in uh, you can find all our FDI podcasts on acast iTunes Spotify and also our website fdiintelligence.com podcast until the next time